Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today we look at labor mobility. Do we need more of it or less of it? The US government is trying hard to get net migration down to tens of thousands. President Trump is, of course, building a wall to keep the Mexicans out. And Scott Morrison, who's Australia's latest prime minister, uh, is looking for a plan to get migrants to settle outside capital cities, exactly where the jobs aren't. Uh, Generally, it seems many people take a dim view of migration. But is it good or bad for the economy? Does it need to be controlled? Are open borders reckless? Or are there benefits of a planet perhaps with complete labour mobility? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So do migrants become a burden on taxpayers or do they add to the productivity of a nation? If there was room, if people from poor countries move to rich countries, then some reckon that the world GDP would double. I mean, it would be a bit crowded. Property would be bloody expensive. But on paper, at least, the economy would grow. Uh, That is never going to happen, of course. One of the reasons so many people voted for Brexit was because they wanted to take control of our borders, just as John Howard said in Australia all those years ago, that we'll decide who comes here and the circumstances in which they come. And the world seems now even more concerned with reducing labour mobility rather than encouraging it. So, Steve, is this a good thing, reducing labour mobility, or is it a bit of a step backwards? I'm I'm actually in favour of it being less mobility, but understanding why the mobility is actually happening. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's, if you have a plentiful supply of workers of any sort coming into an economy, uh, it's going to affect the bargaining power of workers it's going to be something which reduces their capacity to bargain. So you think and it does already, drive wages down? I, I, I mean, think, there's, I think there's validity to the argument. Has that happened, though? I mean, if the, um, you know, it doesn't look like it's it's happened in the UK. We're not, well, I guess we've seen, we've seen wages stagnate since the, uh, since the global financial crisis. Hmm. But that's not a period when we've seen significant increase in, in migration to the UK. It actually was, you know, before the global financial crisis when wages were going up. Yeah, but I think the whole the whole uh, extent to which you've got a, a, a global labour force competing with itself um, has been to the benefit of the people at the top rather than down at the bottom. So there's far more ability of, uh, I mean, capitalism, but, but in terms of monetary capital, monetary capital is by far the most mobile thing you can have. You can you know, transfer money almost instantaneously. Uh, but workers are the ones who've moved physically, and that's in terms of productive resources. That's the workers have been shifting from one country to another, normally moving from a third world country to a first world country. And that has effectively been part of why workers have gone backwards in bargaining power over where they were in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, There was less migration and more of a, a national workforce and uh, the organisation that trade the workforce through unions as well, which have also been abolished. But isn't it more? That's more to do with the power of the unions rather than the number of people from overseas, isn't it? I mean, if there's 
if I mean, if there was the right regulations in place that said, look, if you if if there's no jobs, you can't come here, then presumably people wouldn't. You know, if they couldn't get an easy access to welfare, then presumably they wouldn't come here. So then it's going to be self-regulating to an extent, isn't it? You're just going to make well, sure you've got not, the- not when they, not when you've got the push factor at the other side. I mean, if you're mm. worried about being a victim of um, you know violence, a, a Tamil victim of violence, state violence in Sri Lanka, uh, you're going to leave. No matter, you're going to leave on the hope and a prayer rather than say, oh, there's no, no jobs over there, I won't try. And equally, if you're a climate refugee in Syria, um, and apparently a large part of the internal movements in Syria have been due, due to a declining rainfalls and declining water supplies for farming. I think I'm more to worry about than that, though. <laughs> I think it's more a than lot that more, being but bombed. They, 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 they then get bombed out of the cities and they then migrate to the, to the west. So mm. we're, we're, we're suffering a, a large amount of, of series of breakdowns and... Even though, like, I'm, in general, I'm I'm in favour of refugee resettlement, but in favour of free free movement of labour for the sake of looking for a job somewhere else. Now, I'm not I'm not in favour of that uh, because it's actually effectively weakened the bargaining power of workers. It's made a global market in labour in a way that you don't quite have a global market in terms of uh, in industrial productivity. That industries. But, yeah, the, why, but why not? I mean, if you had that global market of both, you know, free movement of people and capital, which obviously is what the uh, European Union has been trying to do, uh, if you if you extended that on a global scale um, and people went where the jobs were and the jobs went where the people were, um, you'd have a more fluid system. That would have to be a good thing, wouldn't it, ultimately? if it, I mean, well, whether, actually, whether it's practical what, or not, I mean, in theory, it would be a good thing. What you start seeing is actually a depopulation occurring and a concentration of both industry and capital uh, in, in boom sectors and, and a elimination of them elsewhere. I was, uh, I gave a couple of speeches in Croatia uh, one or two years ago, drove some Zagreb down to uh, Pula, which is where I was speaking, and we went through several villages uh, where I just noticed it was unusually quiet and my driver and uh, companion said, oh, there's nobody living here anymore. They've all migrated to the... Um, to the European Union, uh, or migrated to the cities as well, and what meant what it meant was, of course, everything was decaying. There's nobody living there, nobody investing there, nobody maintaining anything, and the places were actually falling into a state of decay. So, in some ways, you you want to have a dispersal. You don't want to necessarily have uh, you want a dispersed population to some degree. You don't want a concentrated one. Um, but if you got it, but if, you, but if you've got an area like that, I mean, if you had, if um, I don't know what the investment situation is in that country, but if you could, in, if you could invest freely, and there were a lot of unemployed people, or uh, you know, people who you could get to work for you on low on lower wages, why wouldn't companies say, well, here's an opportunity? Uh, and because there has to be expenditure in the first place. Expenditure drives income. And there's nobody to spend. There's no income to uh, to to be able to market into. But you sell overseas, you know, in a, in a global marketplace, you sell overseas. You don't- well, that's that's been the philosophy, and we've seen a large increase in exports from the periphery to the to the centre. Again, taking advantage of low wages to do that. Um, but again, that ends up undermining a, a mass consumption society because the workers who are producing the Nike shoes certainly can't afford to buy them. Uh, whereas we had the old days of the Ford manufacturing company, then the Ford workers could afford to buy the, some of the cars they were producing, and. Um, and that's what we've undermined. And I think partly labour mobility has been a factor in, in, in help, helping bring that about. 
So 7% of all people employed in the UK in 1993 were born overseas. Now that's 18%, so it's more than double. Less than half of those, by the way, were born in Europe. The rest come from elsewhere, so more than half from outside Europe. So we've seen a big increase in the proportion of foreign-born workers. You'd be pretty hard-pushed to say from 1993 to today, that's really held the economy back, unless you can equate it to financial crises. But aside from those financial crises, which I'd argue are for completely different reasons, this growth of foreign workers in Britain hasn't really slowed Britain down, has it? No, I think that's that, that's a fair point. Um, but what it's meant is the distribution of income, which is already biased against workers, has become more biased against workers. Mm. And uh, and that's the problem. I mean, you, you, you're getting to the point where you're not going to get those foreign workers coming in anymore because they can't afford to live on the wages they're going to get. Yeah. So that's not exactly the way to succeed in terms of cutting out the enormous labour bill. But we're seeing that, aren't we? It's sort of almost self. So so first of all, if they're, if they're better off, for example, working here than they were in Poland, is that necessarily a bad thing if they're doing jobs uh, which you know we're not we're not seeing a high level of uh, of unemployment as a result of all of these these foreign workers, but it is self-regulating because they've all buggered off back home now because they've realised it's not such a great deal living in the UK now. I can't get my car washed in the car park, for example. <laughs> you know, it used to be the easiest thing in the world. Now I have to pay twice as much to get my car washed, or go and put it through a car wash machine rather than having it done in the uh, car park. Well, you know, there's the first piece of evidence that we're seeing them leaving the country. Uh, and to me, that's sort of like, well, okay, that's that, so they've got to, you know, they were obviously here because they believe they were, it was worthwhile being here. They're not here anymore. They're worse off. I'm worse off. Who's won in this situation? Yeah, that's what I think. What we should have been doing is focusing upon and building our industrial capacity, not uh, getting cheap labour. Yeah, and, I agree and with that. I did always feel guilty, by the way, that I was paying them. They were being, you know, asking a pittance to clean a car. And absolutely- well, I, I found I had a Russian cleaner in my flat in Waterloo, and she was, I was paying her. I was supposed to pay her seven pounds an hour. I couldn't. I paid more than that. I couldn't understand how anybody could survive on that amount of money. On a weekly basis in London, that's you know less than three hundred pounds a, a week, mm. uh, working forty hours. So it's um, it's you look at it and think this is not sustainable, and yet it's part of the wage wage aware system we're paying. Um, and what you're not doing in the meantime is investing in your capacity because you've got cheap labour. And there's a very strong argument actually when you look back at the time of the industrialization of England, in particular in Scotland, where a lot of the Industrial Revolution began in Scotland. Why did it happen there? It ended up being because the price of labour was so high relative to the, the cost of building a machine like a spinning jenny that it was worth somebody's while to come along with the invention of the spinning jenny to uh, reduce the labour costs, but in the process increase the productivity of the country. But if you look at what's happening in France, given the low cost of labour at the time in France, there was no advantage in bringing in something like the spinning jenny. Mm. So to some extent, a high wage is a stimulus to the sort of investment we associate with capitalism. So in other words, we squandered the opportunity, didn't we? So we, com- so we had a, a lot of people wanting to move to this country uh, and we complained about them. When we should have actually been saying, "Well, okay, let's put them to good use, and let's let's use all these people, and let's have more to encourage our industry further." In which case, wouldn't we be saying, "Well, yeah, the mobility of labour in that situation is a good thing." Instead, I what think, we, we, you started from the premise that I didn't start from, mate. So, I didn't think, <laughs> what premise I'm starting from is you, your high wages are actually often a stimulus to investment, yeah. and with with a low standard of living for workers. Um, 
then you, 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 you're willing to stay with a you know, defunct technology because you're making a large amount out of the workers. And the, the worst example of this is actually South America, where uh, when you, you remember a, a so, so, so it stops investment, is your point. It stops it, investment. And, yeah. of course, if you're getting a huge surplus out of your workers, why bother investing? And uh, that's the hacienda capitalism of South America mm. is a major part of why South America hasn't developed because the wages are so low, the income of the wealthy is so high, uh, their consumption, it's all, all financed through export sales rather than domestic sales, and they're spending their money trying to keep up with the American capitalists rather than uh, competitive with their own workers. So you get a, a very, very skewed distribution of income in Latin America, and you don't get any investment. And Latin America is, in terms of uh, productive investments name it name a famous latin american based firm yeah i can't think of that one um mm. <laughs> perhaps because gotcha. there, there aren't any so the issue is then that we were that we're accepting people working on too too low a wage whereas the uh, the argument that's often given isn't it uh selling the tabloids is well these people are coming over here and they're claiming benefits which uh just to put them right on that um, yeah, you do have to prove. And this is why, you know, getting back to the original question, if you've got the right checks and balances in place, is mobility of labour a bad thing? So if you come from the uh, European economic area to, to work in Britain, right now you have to um, show that you've got a genuine prospect of work to be able to claim any unemployment benefit for more than six months. So you can come over here, look for work. If you can't find work within six months, you've got to go back from wherever you came from because you're not going to get any benefits whatsoever. The number of people claiming benefits in this country from the uh, European Economic Area is 120,000 out of nearly 900,000 benefit claims. Just to give that some perspective, in 1986, when we had hardly any EU migrants, unemployment claims were close to 3 million. 120,000 from uh, European Economic Area migrants. So it's, that's not the issue, is it? The issue is the one you've touched on, is the fact that they're working too bloody cheap and so they're not incentivising businesses to progress forward in any way. Mm, yeah, and we, we, we focus upon, in some ways, the distribution of income now, not looking at what's actually happening uh, with the level of investment, which gives you the rate of change of that income over time. So does that apply as well in Australia then, where we had workers in mining communities, uh, there weren't enough locals to do the jobs uh, in mining communities, but also in farming communities. So the 457, the famous 457 visa in Australia, which has been quite contentious, there's about 200,000 of them issued each year for people to come in, do the jobs that they can't find local people to do uh, on very low wages and then fly back home again with their money, which seems a bit crazy to me. Rather, you know, before they have a chance to spend it, they've got to, uh, they, they've got to go off. And that's all because they're working on the cheap. So you'd see that as being a problem as well. Yeah, and and again, you, you then don't intend to invest, end up investing in your own skill base. You don't train local workers to provide the skill capacity domestically, and you therefore end up with a less productive society over time. And as you said, part of the wage money as well as part of the profit money goes overseas anyway. But these are jobs that local people wouldn't do because the society has progressed and expectations are, are so much greater that people don't want to pick fruit or uh, chip away at a mine. So that's why they're bringing in people from overseas. That's that's the argument behind it, isn't it? And it's, it's, there's some validity to it in terms of the picking fruit thing, without a doubt. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's it, it, to me it's it's again focusing on a class struggle between workers and capitalists rather than saying what's going to give us a higher level of investment and share the increased physical productivity around. 
which we're just not doing. We ended up being a competition over what's available right now rather than expanding that capability over time. I'm not saying I disagree with you, but I'm just giving you an, a few examples here. So okay. let, me, let me give you another one. We've got yeah. a shortage of NHS doctors. It's, we've got a, cap, a visa cap system uh, because we feel we need to cap the number of migrants. Um, I'm not quite sure why if there's jobs here for them and they pay their taxes. Uh, do we, you know, my, my question is to you, do we, do we care how many if they're, if they're working? But uh, in the case of NHS doctors, um, you know, we, we haven't got enough of them now. So the NHS is struggling. The easiest solution to that is, well, we'll just have more of them, which is actually what we're doing. We're saying, well, OK, when it comes to doctors, we'll abolish that visa cap. Uh, we'll make an exception to them. Um, so where we are trying to control migration numbers, we don't seem to be very successful at it because we suddenly discover that we need these people. Mm. And it's also, well, you know, it's rather crazy having a shortage of doctors in an, in an advanced country. Um, but that's what we have in the UK. And, you know, partly I, I look at the salaries doctors <laughs> and I think uh, they're a lot less than I expected them to be, having come from an Australian background where doctors do quite nicely, thanks very much. That what doctors earn in the NHS is actually quite an embarrassingly low salary given the training they've got to go through. So in that situation, uh, it's discouraging people to train domestically, but of course those same salaries can look attractive from a third world country perspective and, and you end up having you know, less training you need domestically and you take people who are trained in a foreign country you know, supposedly for the benefit of its own, own people and they then go overseas. So you, uh, you know, you, you're denuding the third world of skills and underpaying the development of those skills in the first world at the same time. So what would you have happen? You you think the situation where we are, like, for example, this government is trying to say, well, we want, I think it's 250,000 as the net migration figure uh, into the UK. Policies like that are the, are the right policy? policy? You, you, you put a number on it and that would then encourage people to develop work for local people within the country, which might increase salaries. But that's not a bad thing because obviously that helps the economy go around. Yeah, I'd prefer to focus on developing your domestic skills. And I, my, uh, I mean, I was a great fan of the migration that occurred in Australia uh, from the fifties and sixties on because yeah. we, that, that you know it built the Snowy Mountain scheme, a very you. boring country into a rather more interesting one. Yeah, um, but. Uh, when you a- again look at the, the population overload that most countries have right now in terms of the, the sustainability of their e- ecology, um, then that itself is a major argument against letting more uh, po- population transfers occur. The trouble is virtually every part of the planet these days has got an ecological overload. The only countries that don't are places like New Zealand and Uruguay. Um, so it's you, you look at it and thinking we're, not, we're creating more problems for ourselves this way than we're solving. But if we had open borders with the, with the caveat that you can't move without a job, if that was the norm around the world, okay, it might uh, there might not be anybody left in Syria, but there's not going to be anyone left in Syria pretty soon anyway. Uh, I mean, we we might on the on the positive side start to break down inequality on the planet, mightn't we? Because we, you know people might start to say, well, okay, there's some areas now where there's opportunities. If we also said free movement of capital, where people say, "Yes, I'm going to I'm going to invest in those areas because there's there's people working in those areas." Right now, only three percent of the population live outside the country where they were born in, so we are pretty much tied to the countries where we were from. If we had more fluidity of movement, you you actually think that would be a bad thing? I, th- I think we underestimate the need for diversity because we're always focusing upon efficiency as a, as the economic uh, obsession, and you need diversity. Um, for innovation to occur, 
and I like a bit of some diversity within country, but diversity between them as well. And when you go to a globalised marketplace, when you have no uh, no powerful workers as well, it ends up being the workers who pay the price for it, and they're the ones who are already suffering in the economy, whether you're talking in Syria or in the UK. And I just want to think it strengthens the hands of workers, and to a large degree, I think the free movement of labour has actually weakened the power that workers have to bargain and we're seeing sort of world that that leads to where even now the central banks are complaining work wages aren't rising enough i mean the, not, the not for them i'm sure yeah, yeah the old complaint used to be wages are rising too much now they're in the strange world they've got to say oh, wages aren't rising enough but you know weren't you guys always trying to reduce the level of wage rises and reduce bargaining capability for workers well you've got your dream why aren't you happy yeah. And the reason is because even even on their metrics, it ends up being a dysfunctional system. So we all stay where we are, uh, even though you and I have uh, both not followed that uh, followed that advice uh, <laughs> by moving to different countries. I mean, uh, do you think you should have been able to move to the UK, for example? Do you think? Uh, uh, are you saying mobility is all right so long as it's for me, but not for everybody else? <laughs> Good question. I think um, like I, I cert- like a certain amount of mobility, but I like mobility as a pull factor rather than a push factor. Mm. And what we've got is a large part of the migration we're complaining now is a push factor. People are leaving you know, the, the parts, of the, the, the Slavic part of the world, the Middle Eastern part of the world because of social conflict and uh, economic breakdown and climate problems, not because they want to, you know, they want to enjoy the weather in England. And, uh, and that to me is the worry that we have so many push factors now that they're overwhelming what would, uh, the much smaller level of movement that would exist if we only had pull factors taking people around the planet. Right. But if you could mitigate those push factors, then it would be less of, less of, an, less of an issue in that case. That's really the thing. I mean, we're creating those pushes on a grand scale in countries like Syria. Mm. And we've done that a large part in Africa as well. So people are becoming refugees because of the effect of Western interventions on those countries. And then we're complaining about the impact of on that on Western, Western societies. Uh, you know, uh, we're a wonderful old... Uh, Dob, uh, uh, Philip Cobb cartoon with a, um, a two-handed American, one feeding a starving local and the other strangling that same local. And the local says, excuse me, senor, does your left hand know what your right hand is doing? And, uh, and that's the situation we're in. We're complaining about the impact on our societies of excessive migration and movement. We're causing it by our interventions in countries like Syria. And at 250,000, if that is the figure, if it's not, it's pretty close to it as the net, which is unachievable. I don't think we're ever going to get there as the, uh, the net migration figure for the UK. I mean, is that sustainable for the economy or do you need more people, more people than we are breeding uh, to keep the economy growing? If you get to growing by population growth, you don't get a growth in per capita income out of it. It's, mm. And it's also a strong argument. This is being used in Australia quite a lot these days. But what you get is what they call capital broadening. You've got to add more roads, more schools, more power lines. You don't get capital deepening. You don't, you don't go from roads to rail, you know, high-speed rail. You don't, uh, you don't build more factories. You're just simply increasing the infrastructure. And that, at the same time, when you look at the ecological burden in those countries who are already... Uh, adding more people to a country which is already consuming more of its productive capacity than it can renew every year. So um, I, you know, I, I, I would rather put a stop to that sort of thing than push the big population uh, approach to GDP, which doesn't increase GDP per capita and quite arguably reduces it. Right. 
All right. Well, there we are. So uh, no open borders. We need to we're – do, we're doing the – the world is moving in the right direction as far as you're concerned then because we are seeing the closing up of borders. Now, you, you think that's a step in the right direction? Relatively. I mean, but it, 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 I'm not going to close borders. Obviously, obviously, we're, obviously we're not going to – or academics. The, uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Refu- well, I mean, some people would say, well, the refugees are the, are the people who are least likely to contribute. I mean, you've got – obviously, we have a – uh, 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 you know they're human beings so we have to find an answer but you know a lot of people would say well these are the people who are least likely to uh, provide a positive impact to the economy because they are so culturally different and also uh, perhaps less able to move into the workplace well they're often the ones who actually are are, are most industrious and most uh, venture capitalist inclined as well as we saw in australia yeah and uh, bring in new industries because they're going to have you know they've got to produce products for their local clientele and hey we end up finding us enjoy lebanese and asian food so um there's an extent to which that that's the internal diversity which is a good thing it's which you know revives cultures and so on but um when it ends up being cheap industrial factory fodder or cheap cleaners uh, not those, no, not so good for the society overall. Uh, okay, very good. We'll leave it there. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I've, you went in a different direction to where I thought you were going to go, in a different direction to my mm-hmm. thinking. But maybe we'll meet in the middle somewhere sometime. Okay, mate. Speak to you next time. Yeah, I am of the school of thought that actually thinks that more migration is better than uh, less migration, simply because if you are moving people from poor countries and they are upping their wealth, they probably are sending some of that money back, but at the same time, they're, they're, they're pushing up uh, the income, national income in this country uh, as well, and obviously becoming a market for goods and services as well. But uh, like anything, there's uh, no hard and fast answer, and it's all a question of uh, to what extent, isn't it really? Uh, certainly the idea from Scott Morrison uh, in Australia is a bit... The, the idea that you actually set up migrants to fail by ensuring that they live in places where there's just no jobs. That just seems a little bit crazy, doesn't it, really? OK, Sydney's overcrowded, but there's always Brisbane and Melbourne and Perth and Adelaide uh, where there's at least some hope of getting a job. That's it this time. Next time, we're going to look at uh, income inequality. Uh, how do we reduce it and how much is it holding back the economy? Uh, that's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.